Good morning. All right, our scripture reading for this morning, it's Genesis chapter 39. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 33. So that's Genesis 39, page 33 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Genesis 39, this is the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, and Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he had to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. All right, so we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and we're in chapter 39. 
this morning. Um, one just quick little note on the outline. We're going to actually flip points four and five. So you don't get thrown off when we get there. Um, there's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful. The, the slides will be up here as well. So uh, point number four is actually going to be flee sexual immorality. Point number five is going to be vertical accountability. So you can just scratch that out and flip them or whatever. All right. So have you ever read a story of wrongful conviction and imprisonment? Uh, if you haven't, you can Google that, find some. There's lots of stories like this, sadly. Um, I looked online last night and found two really sad stories pretty quickly. So one man was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for murder. He was in his late 20s. This was in 1985. He was mowing his mother's grass when police arrested him for two murders that he did not commit. He lived on death row. He smelled the burning flesh of men who were electrocuted in the electric chair not far from his cell. In the almost 30 years that he was in prison and on death row, about 50 men were executed. This man was not exonerated until 2015. Another man spent 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was 18 years old when he was imprisoned. I mean, just, just imagine that, 39 years, 18 to almost 60. So I mention those scenarios to encourage you to put yourself in their shoes. How would you respond if that happened to you? What would that be like emotionally? What kind of faith battles would you go through if that happened to you? So Joseph, who's central in our text this morning in chapter 39, didn't spend that long, 39 years or 30 years in prison, but he was sold as a slave by his brothers at age 17. And he didn't come out of prison until he was 30 years old. And in between, he's wrongfully accused of trying to take advantage of Potiphar's wife. So many of us are familiar with the story of the life of Joseph, um, but let's just review it for, for those of us who maybe are not so familiar um, and also just so we can catch the context. So he was his father's favorite, his favored son. He was the oldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Right? So his father gave him a special coat, and he had these dreams that he was going to rule over his brothers, and his brothers hated him for it. They were jealous of him. They were bitter towards him. They hated him, and they wanted to kill him. And so he came. He was sent by his father to go check on his brothers who were tending um, their flocks. They saw him coming, and they said, let's just kill him. And Instead of doing that, they decided to throw him in a pit and some Ishmaelite traders came along and they said, well, let's at least get some money out of the deal and they sold him to these traders and deceived their father. They 
killed an animal, killed a goat, put blood on the, the special coat that their father had given him. And, you know, the story was that some wild beast had killed him and that he was dead. So, we get to chapter 39, and Joseph is in Egypt. He was purchased, verse 1, by Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, once these Ishmaelites had brought him to Egypt. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in the middle of the story and then go out to the bookends. So look at verse 6, the end of verse 6, so that we can kind of briefly go through the, the middle of the story of Joseph's interaction with Potiphar's wife. Okay, so Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So he was probably chiseled. He probably had, you know, a six-pack. Um, probably looked like a Dorito, you know, like this. He's a good-looking guy. He's young. And after a time, Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me, which is interesting. Is she, is that a power play? Like it's kind of like a command, you know, you're a servant, lie with me. So it's not so much seduction, though I think that's going on there as well, but it's almost like a power play. How can he refuse? He's a servant. And actually this kind of sexual promiscuity was, you know, pretty common in slave societies like this. So he had some real challenge and tension here. Um, he could be in trouble either way if he says no or if he says yes. So, but certainly it was clear that if he obeys her, he's going to disobey his master and he's going to dishonor God. So he refuses and says to him in response, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We'll come back to that. He doesn't say sin against my master. And as she spoke to Joseph, did you catch it? Day after day. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. So he is avoiding temptation regularly. To fear the Lord is to shun evil, like it says in Proverbs. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And so here's this spurned woman and she decides to turn it around on him. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. This is an odd expression, isn't it? What do you mean to laugh at us? Um, to fool with us, to toy with us is probably um, a translation that gets at the idea a little bit better. Sometimes it can be used of making fun of someone, and sometimes it can be used of sexual intimacy, like caressing, that kind of thing. So making sport of or humiliating us would be another way to translate that. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. 
And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, it's actually an ethnic slur, whom you have brought among us, it's your fault, you going to do anything about it? Came in to me to make sport of me, to humiliate me, to take advantage of me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And really, it's God's providence that he didn't execute him. Okay, so isn't it interesting that his brothers said, let's kill him because of these dreams, but then they ended up selling him. Why? Because God preserved him. And Potiphar could have executed him, but instead he imprisoned him. Why? Because God is preserving him. So, the temptation is obviously the centerpiece of maybe the chapter as far as how it's laid out. It gets the most ink, <laughs> verses 6 to 20. But the actual centerpiece of the story is on the bookends. Okay? It's the frame that's actually central in the story. So let's look at the centrality of the frame in verses 1 to 5 and verses 21 to 23. So this is point number one in the outline if you're using that. Let's look at verses 1 to 5 first. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Yahweh. This is the personal covenant name. See those four capital letters? The personal covenant name of God. Yahweh was with Joseph. And he became a success, successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him. And that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in Potiphar's sight, and Joseph attended him. And Potiphar made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. We're going to come back to that too. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that Potiphar had in house and field. Kind of like when Jacob lived with Laban, the Lord's blessing was on Jacob, and so therefore it was on Laban's household. So he left all, this is Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Okay? So just notice the progression here. Even though Joseph was unjustly treated, abused by his brothers, 
sent away as a slave, sold as a slave by his brothers, that didn't mean that the Lord had abandoned him. He was with him. And the fact that he was with him went public, was obvious by the way that Joseph was so competent and successful. Seemed like he had some really serious administrative gifts. <laughs> so his master sees this, but somehow his master knew to attribute it not just to him, but to his God. His master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight. And as a result of being promoted, the blessing of God rested on Potiphar's house on account of Joseph. Okay? So now look at the other bookend. Verses 21 to 23. But the Lord, again, Yahweh, the name of God, the special covenant name, remember Moses at the burning bush, who should I tell them sent me? I am who I am. I'm the self-existent one. Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his name. That's who he is. So the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. This is after he gets unjustly accused of attempted rape and thrown into prison. The Lord was still with him. He hadn't abandoned him. And he shows him steadfast love and gave Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. It doesn't say because, man, this guy had some serious admin skills some serious leadership skills. He was a great manager, even though that's probably true. The narrator wants to make it really clear who gets the credit for all of it. It's because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Yahweh was with him and blessed him, but that did not mean that he wouldn't suffer. The suffering didn't mean that God wasn't with him. The suffering didn't mean that God had abandoned him. So the frame is central, actually, in understanding what's going on in this chapter. This is not merely a morality tale, though it is an example for us. The, the ultimate point is not, look at how Joseph resisted temptation. You should resist temptation. Okay? That's a legitimate application. We'll get there. Okay? But... This is not a mere morality tale. John Salehammer, a, a commentator, he said, this is not a story of the success of Joseph. Rather, it is a story of God's faithfulness to his promises. God's actually the lead character in this story. He's actually the hero in this story. Okay, so we need to make sure we pay attention to the bookends, to the frame. So this is all about God's faithfulness to his promises to Joseph because God was with Joseph even in the midst of all this injustice 
that he suffered. So God was with Joseph, and God is also with us. Okay? He's with his people in the good and in the bad. You remember what Job said? I mean, he suffered horribly. And at one point he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I don't understand what's going on, but I know the character of God. So Joseph's suffering, unjust suffering, didn't mean that God abandoned him. And the same is true for us. If we are God's children, by faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus to rescue us from our sin and to reconcile us to God so that we are a member in his family, then the biggest, like it is ultimately well with our soul no matter what we go through. Okay? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because God is with us. He is for us if we're in Christ, not against us. So nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not famine or persecution or, or peril or danger or sword. You see, none of those things in Romans 8 mean that God doesn't love you, that God has abandoned you. No. Through all those things, we can be more than conquerors. His love is steady. Nothing can separate us from his love. He's with us. He's for us. He hasn't abandoned us. We're not alone. We're not on our own. We're not left to fend for ourselves. So no matter what we face in this life, if we are in Christ, we are safe. And God is with us. So we are not alone. We are not left to fend for ourselves. Joseph's story is testimony to us that it's true. So God being with his people is actually a central theme in the book of Genesis and in the whole Bible. So just maybe you might want to just close your eyes and listen. Because I'm going to just read some texts in Genesis to start and then a few more in the rest of the Bible to show this theme of God being with us. Do you believe he's with you right now? Whatever you're tempted to freak out about that's going on in your life right now, the stuff that you were like battling anxiety and fear over this week, is he with you? Is it well? Can it be well with our souls no matter what? So just listen to these. First, in Isaac's life, just going back to chapter 26, God said to him, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. This is God speaking to his covenant people. This is how he talks to his people. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I'm going to be faithful to my promises. A few verses later, the Lord appeared to Isaac the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then in his son's life, Jacob, Genesis 28, behold, the Lord stood above. This is this that whole, you know, Jacob's ladder, um, that dream that he had. The Lord stood above it, above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Echoing the promise to, to Abraham in chapter 12. 
And then he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you, protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 31, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. I mentioned it already, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear any evil because he is with us. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever fearful circumstance you go through, you're not ultimately going to be consumed. Because I'm with you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. God's faithfulness over and over and over again. Fast forward to the New Testament. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's Matthew 1. Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, last one here, at least that I'm going to mention. The Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So God is faithful. He is with us. We can go through adversity, particularly undeserved suffering and injustice, And when that happens, we can oftentimes feel abandoned by God. But this chapter is here to counter that feeling and tell us the truth about God's faithfulness. So another writer, Sidney Gradonis, writes, Even in his descent into the lower of human stations, the Lord was with Joseph. Even far from the promised land, the Lord was with Joseph. Although all human supports have failed, A lot of people have mistreated him. Although all human supports have failed and Joseph is far removed from the community of faith and the land of promise, God stays with him. So remember, you know, it opened up with those two cases of men who were falsely accused and convicted and imprisoned. I mean, can you imagine The Bible doesn't really go into how Joseph felt about this, but you can imagine how he wrestled with feeling abandoned and let down and alone. And, you know, God, I thought those dreams were from you. And how in the world is this going to... I mean, can you imagine how bleak his future looked? Like his future is just closing down. And what happens when our 
future looks like it's closing down. We lose hope. I mean, he easily could have been hopeless. Where is God? But what does he do? What is he, I mean, what was he thinking? What is it? Somehow he learned through all of this to trust that God was with him. He could have said when Potiphar's wife did this, oh, again? Really? Really, God? Like, what is the deal? Where are you? Or he could say, I have been in a pit before and God raised me up. He can do it again. He could have licked his wounds and put the worst interpretation on his circumstances. Don't we do that so easily? We're like Eeyore. Oh, you know, like you just, okay, Winnie the Pooh, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, like there's like a cloud that goes along wherever Eeyore is. And sometimes we can do that with our circumstances. And it's like this, why do we do that? Why do we, why do we feed and nurse the self-pity? Or have you ever used your sense of being let down by God as an excuse for doing something reckless? Like, fine, whatever. And then, so I'm, we don't excuse any of the sin of his brothers. We talked about that in past weeks. But chapter 39 is about the faithfulness of God to Joseph and his response. So again, primary theme here is the faithfulness of God. And God's faithfulness enables Joseph's faithfulness in the face of sexual temptation. So, we need to see his example here and learn from it. So as you and I, as we run the race that's set before us, and oftentimes what's set before us is not what we would choose. This man is in the great cloud of witnesses whose life is cheering us on as we run. So that we will also throw off the weights and the sin that so easily entangles and run with our eyes fixed on Jesus with endurance. So this is a story of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his people, and it's God's faithfulness that enables our faithfulness. So if we are going to be faithful, we need to get our eyes on God's faithfulness, not lose sight of that. So one, just one of the promises that God made, that he's making good on here, it's interesting, is that he would bless the families of the earth through his covenant people, right? Genesis 12. Um, in fact, flip back to Genesis 12. We need to kind of put Genesis 39 in the context of the whole Bible. So let's do that by making a connection here between Genesis 39 and, and Genesis 12. When he called Abram out to follow him, Genesis 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How in the world is that going to happen? Well, flip back to 39. Okay, our chapter for this morning. Look at verse 5. Did you see it? From the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So Genesis 12.3 is beginning to be fulfilled. But this is only the beginning, right? That promise that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham's offspring, all the many fulfillments along the way, like in Abraham's life, in Joseph's life here, all of it points to Jesus, actually, who really fulfilled that promise. Listen to Galatians 3. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's quoting Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So, if you try to work your way into righteousness before God, you have to keep all the law, all the time, always. Otherwise, you're under a curse because you're a lawbreaker and you deserve condemnation. But if you trust God and his provision, his gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus, he died in your place on the cross for your sins, then we are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Galatians goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, it's through Jesus, who is ultimately a son of Abraham, that the blessing of God is going to spread to all the families of the earth. So Joseph is just like a little early down payment of that fulfillment. And it's pointing to Jesus who through him, all the families of the earth, this gospel is spreading throughout the whole earth and people are being blessed. We deserve to be cursed because of our sin. But in Christ, he took the curse for us so that we could be blessed all because of God's faithfulness and his mercy and his grace. So, so why is God with us? <laughs> because Jesus was unjustly cursed in our place so that we would be blessed and that through us we could then bless the world. Okay? So we see some of those promises beginning to be fulfilled in Joseph's life and he is like a pointer to Jesus who would come so that those promises would be fully fulfilled. So again, this is not a story, this is that Salehammer quote again, this is not a story of the success of Joseph, rather it's the story of God's faithfulness to his promises. And so in, with God's promises, um, or God's faithfulness to his promises, um, in view, that is what enabled Joseph to be faithful to God. 
So in light of God's faithfulness, let's watch, let's see how his faithfulness should translate into faithfulness in our lives in the face of temptation. So the next few points are going to be looking at Joseph's example and learning from it for our own lives, okay? So point number three, guard yourself from the gravitational pull. So Joseph answered Potiphar's wife, right, clearly without even opening the door a crack, okay? She was persistent, but he remained steadfast. Look at verse 10. It says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So lie with me. That's obviously euphemism for, you know, having sex with her. But here, to lie beside her, it seems like maybe she, once she got rebuffed with the command approach, you know, she's trying to wear down his defenses. And so it seems like maybe she's saying, well, well maybe the incremental approach will work. So maybe she tried to get him to, to, to agree to something lesser. Just lie beside me. I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just cold. I don't know. Something like that. But he refused to lie beside her or to be with her. Okay, that is wisdom in this situation. Because she was trying to draw him in. So in Proverbs 5.8, the same wisdom is at work in this exhortation. Listen to this. So speaking of the forbidden woman with her smooth speech, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. And then it goes on to show how you can ruin your life if you, you know, commit adultery or, or just embrace sexual, sexual immorality, give way to temptation. So, you know, you can work all of your life to build this life and legacy, and you can just destroy it in, in a moment. So the point in Proverbs is don't get inside her gravitational pull. Don't get close enough for her to act on you, in a sense. So um, I remember meditating on this passage a couple years ago, and I was thinking, what's, the, what's it called when you get close enough to a black hole where, you know, there's like the point of no return, you know? So I, What's that? Yes, thank you, Phil. You're right. And I emailed another one of our, you know, science-gifted folks here in the, in the church. I remember emailing Paul Shimkus and, you know, just saying, what's, what's that called? So this, I'm going to quote from his email from a couple years ago. Um, so he said, the term is sphere of influence. I'll get to the other one in a second. Um, the idea is that although every item in the universe is gravitationally attracted to every other, the magnitude of the attraction decreases with the square of the distance between them. You can see he wrote this, not me, okay? <laughs> so if a satellite is close enough to a massive object, like a planet, the influence of all the other farther planets or stars, the stars are way bigger than those planets, right? The closer object will be you know, the thing that it orbits around, okay? So the power of that star that's light years away will become negligible in comparison to the influence of the planet that it is close to. So that's why the moon orbits the earth and not around the sun. The sun is 333,000 times more massive than the earth. But the moon orbits around the earth, not around the sun. Why? Because of proximity. 
So event horizon, yes. That's the distance from a black hole at which nothing, not even light, can escape the gravitational pull. And Paul went on to say a few other really sciencey things, but I'll, I'll leave that out. Um, so here's the point. Gravitational pull and influence grows with proximity. And massive objects lose their attractive force the more distant they are. Hmm. Anybody connecting any dots? So if you, like for all of us, whether you're married or not, if God becomes distant and unreal and you get close to temptation, it's going to have a really powerful force, right? Or if you're married and you work with someone and you're spending time with them and you kind of toy with that emotional connection, you can have this massive covenantal, you know, union, this marriage thing, but it's not really exercising much influence because of this proximity over here. So the point is, we need to be really careful. We need to guard ourselves from the gravitational pull of temptation. So if you drift from your spouse and go nearer a person at work, the gravitational pull of that covenantal commitment will weaken and may not be strong enough to keep you from getting sucked in. So Joseph understood this. He kept his distance. That's what it looks like to remain faithful to God, empowered by his faithfulness to us. We need to guard our hearts, right? We need to not think too highly of ourselves. We can't toy with sexual temptation, whether it's on the internet, TV, movies, in your mind, just entertaining fantasy. Can't allow that emotional connection with someone in your neighborhood or at your work or at the gym. Can't let that go unchecked. I mean, have you begun to be subtly flirtatious in your conversation? And I think sometimes what we try to do is we kind of just get close enough to the line where we can just kind of enjoy it, but safely, right? Because I'm not going to enjoy it here. And yeah, I, I can back away. But the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of God, he loves us. He knows what's best for us. He doesn't say, you know, just make sure you, like at least six inches, you know, 12 flee. Like, guard yourself from the gravitational pull. Don't even get close to it. And that's what Joseph did. He refused to lie beside her or be with her. He didn't want to toy with that temptation. So we can't, you know, see how close we can get without getting sucked in. Again, same thing with stuff on the internet. Like, you may not be looking at porn, although you may be, and this text certainly applies and has a good word for you. But it also could just be kind of sexually provocative stuff. And it's safe, right? Because it's not porn. We need to beware of the gravitational pull. So instead of seeing how close we can get, we need to keep a safe distance. So Proverbs warns again, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So instead of playing with how close we can get to the line without crossing it, God wisely exhorts us through Joseph's example to flee 
sexual immorality. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6 says it explicitly. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, redeemed from slavery to sin, so that you could be free and belong to God. So glorify God in your body. You're not your own. And remember, the faithfulness of God, we are not alone. We are not our own, and we're not alone. We've been redeemed. We belong to God. So let's flee temptation and infidelity and run to God, our Redeemer and our lover and our friend and our refuge and our joy and our peace and our satisfaction. Like, brothers and sisters, we cannot toy with or negotiate with temptation. We need to run from it. God is faithful. He is with us. There is always a way of escape. By God's grace, you can flee the event horizon. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 to 13 says this. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then it says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So you see it? God's faithfulness means that there's always the way of escape, and we can faithfully run from temptation to him and be safe. Thankfully, also, when we fail to run, we can run to him and find mercy and forgiveness and cleansing as well. So we are not alone. We are not on our own. We are not our own. We've been redeemed. We belong to another. We're not slaves of sin anymore. We are slaves, happy slaves of God. We must glorify him in our bodies. So as you can see, the key to our faithfulness is the faithfulness of God. All of our horizontal temptations can only be successfully resisted by means of vertical help. So last point, vertical accountability. Did you notice it in chapter 39, verses 8 and 9? So Joseph refused Potiphar's wife and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you're his wife. How then, how, how would you have finished this sentence? How would you expect him to finish this sentence? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he is so far from home. There's no accountability, horizontally speaking. No one would know. He was obeying his master's wife. This was a norm in the society. I mean, what good had faithfulness to God done him thus far? No, he feared God in the good sense. And he shunned evil in the wise sense. The beginning of wisdom is to fear is the fear of the Lord. So if we don't have a sense, like a real palpable sense of the fact that we live all of life quorum Deo, before the face of God, before the presence of God, then horizontal accountability is only going to be as helpful as we want it to be. Because you know what? We can always lie. We can tell people what they want to hear. We can just avoid 
the questions. But we cannot fool God. He sees and he knows all. But if his presence, his being with us, us doing all of life before his face, if that's not real or compelling to us, we are going to be sitting ducks for temptation. So we actually need to cultivate vertical accountability. Lord, oh, if, so, so maybe you're, you're tempted to look at stuff on the internet. You shouldn't. Imagine this. Like, what if your best friend just all of a sudden, you know, kind of like a portal opened, boom, was standing there right beside you. What would you do? Oh, you know, you like shut it down. Well, God's always there. It's just that his presence isn't real to us. So maybe we could pray, Lord, make it more real. You're always here. You see it all. So we need to cultivate vertical accountability. Joseph's response is testimony to that. He does not say what we would expect, even though that would be a good reason too, you know, sin against my master. But he's relating everything vertically. That is the ultimate reason. That's the ultimate motive. That's the ultimate inhibitor. So all we do, all we are, all we watch, all we think is done before the face of God. What you watch on your business trip in the hotel room, how you act at the bar down in the hotel restaurant, you know, it's all before the face of God. Your browser history is known to God even if you clear it so no human eyes will see it. So we should have a healthy fear of God, but even more so a sincere love for God. I mean, don't, don't you want to fear? Like, don't you fear infidelity? Not just, boy, that would blow up my life and I would look really bad. But, oh, I don't want to I don't want to be unfaithful to you, God. You've been so faithful to me, so gracious, so kind, so loving, so merciful. It's his faithfulness that melts our hearts and fills us with his love that we might love him and pursue fierce fidelity to him. So, listen, let's, let's not miss it. Aren't you glad that his faithfulness to us is the source and the hope for our faithfulness to him. Okay? So we close appropriately with the song, Lord, I Need You. Because that's where we're left, right? So Potiphar's wife, day after day, well, we're going to get bombarded day after day with temptation. And Lord, we need you. So let's close with that song as a prayer. So, Father, please, would you help us to feel our need of you so that we can be faithful to you? But, Lord, please, most of all, show us how great your faithfulness has been and is to us, how great your love has been and is to us, that it would melt our hearts and we would just it would just be emotionally impossible to sin against you like this. Lord, please cultivate this vertical accountability. Make your reality, your goodness and greatness so much more real to us. 
that we might be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.